Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Phil. Phil? Yes, I've decided to relax today. We're getting near Christmas. Gosh. You'll be Are you happy? Taking off your tie soon. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed. Um, so this is going to be a slightly experimental show, Andrew. Well, it's a roundup show, isn't it? We're looking back and looking forward. Looking back, looking forward. We've got an amazing story at the heart of it, um, all about gangsters, aristocrats, sexual shenanigans, all our favourite stuff, really. Exactly. But before daily we get life to, in Britain, daily life in uh, Kentish Town. But before we get to that, um, I want to talk a bit more about last week's program. Yeah, our most successful. I think it is. You know, yep. I think it's our most listened to. Maybe also our most divisive. Yep. Well, it was a good subject, good good interview, and um, clearly very topical. And people are interested in what's going on in California. They are. So, yes, so for those who maybe didn't listen or see it, um, last episode we had the royal journalist Valentine Lowe sitting here in Scandal Central with us. Being mischievous. Being rather mischievous, his, his words, um, and talking about how he came to be involved in the great Meghan and Harry saga. Uh, largely by being the first journalist to report allegations that she had, uh, that Megan had been a very difficult employer, and perhaps even a bully. Um, and actually, our, maybe it wasn't our program, but um, maybe it was the Netflix series, which I think has a few more viewers than we do. But at the moment, at the moment, yes, time will tell. Um, but of course, the program, um, the last three episodes came out after we recorded, and it included quite an attack on Valentine. Yes, well, attack on everyone. I mean, they really upped the ante on, on the second one. I, I reviewed the, the first three and watched the first three. Uh, I did them for German television and for here. Uh, and we kind of thought that was going to be it. Mm. And then suddenly, wham, bam. I mean, the gloves were totally off. Yeah, a lot more aggressive. And especially on this question of briefing. 
Yeah. And uh, Valentine's story was attacked, and Valentine's credibility was attacked, in yeah. fact. And of they, all the uh, correspondents, I would have said he was the most scrupulous and independent, or one of the most scrupulous and independent. So what they said was basically, um, when they were doing their Oprah interview, um, the palace put out this smear story that um, Meghan had bullied people, and Valentine had um, had been the sort of the, the, the vessel for that. Um, he came right back with an article saying this, I never made any secret of the fact there was a connection to Oprah. But the reason I wrote that story is that the people themselves who claim to have been victimized contacted me and they wanted their side of the story out. So it, that's where it sits. Well, it's very interesting. I have a friend called Elsa Anderson, who was the Queen's uh, communication secretary, and she's been briefing this week, saying, you know, why would we brief against the royal family? Our job is to protect the institution. So any members would be protected. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It's funny, though, because I think we have dipped our own little toes, our scandalous little toes, into these turbulent waters now. And you find yourself wrapped up in it. We've had more criticism online in, in our short existence than any other show. I've been called Scrape, a sellout. Yep, scraping the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. You've been accused of being establishment. I know. That was the worst. That was hard, very hurtful, very hurtful. But actually, I'm going to mention, I'm going to name check one of our early fans and a great friend of mine, the wonderful Jane Caro, a writer uh, in Australia, who was uh, very much behind us in our early episodes. And I think she, she hasn't said anything about this one, but I know from her tweets, she's a big Meghan and Harry supporter. And I think actually that's the kind of way it's, things are breaking down a little bit. You know, the younger, cooler people like Jane, very young, very cool, very funky, um, if you're listening, Jane, um, they tend, I think, especially those who live outside Britain, to, to see this Harry and Meghan story as part of a, through the prism of their views about Britain, which is maybe that it's, it's run by a load of old fuddy-duddies and maybe it's a bit backward, maybe it's a bit racist. And it needed someone from the outside to shake it up. It needed someone from the outside to yeah. shake it up. Well, also, it's just an echo chamber now. Both sides are so, in a sense, stuck with their views that you're not going to change many people's point of view, even with discussions like ours. It's funny because I think, from my perspective, I, I would, and, and I think the shows we've made, actually, we were quite criti- very critical of the establishment when it comes to the Mount Batten story, um, the work I've done on Diana, and briefing against her, which I still think is a, is a scandal that has never properly been explored. But when it comes to Meghan and Harry, I'm, I'm, I'm much more torn. I really am. As to where the truth lies between these two very polarised camps now. Well, you know, their truths differ, I think. You know, they're, they're seeing it through a completely different prism. But, I mean, the, the press here is pretty unanimous, you know, attacking their lies. You know, they, they're misrepresenting things the whole time. So whether they're justified in some of their accusations, they, they haven't made their case very cleverly. Yes, it's funny though, because if you look at some of the things printed today, and we're talking the last Sunday before Christmas here in London, a horrible thing printed by a very famous writer, Jeremy Clarkson, who was photographed only two days ago drinking with Camilla at her party. And he wrote the most revolting thing. I mean, and if you were a critic of the royal family or, a, you know, somebody who's taken Meghan's side, you would see in what Clarkson wrote today evidence that there's a poisonous racist atmosphere in this country. Yeah, I, I was uh, shocked when you talked about that. I haven't seen the piece yet. But I mean, what is the Sunday Times doing publishing something like that? You know, I let's know. keep a little bit of dignity here. Well, I, you know, I, I think that... I, I'm not a fan of Harry and Meghan, but, uh, you know, one needs to keep it on a certain level. If anybody hasn't seen it, it's all over the internet today. He basically said... Yeah, I mean, he was trying to be satirical, I think, but of course it was very um, pointed what he wrote, which was that he thought, you know, Meghan should be dragged through the streets of Britain, humiliated, and people th- should throw excrement at her. 
I mean, it's stomach. It's just disgusting. Well, what's going to happen if, when they come to the coronation then? Well, I think this that sort of thing just winds people up. Uh, and I do think there is an element here of people taking sides. I mean, gosh, people have always taken sides about these subjects, but this, with, with well, social media the way it is. Di- I mean, Diana, I suppose it's come a long way since then, but if you think of Diana and Camilla. But it seems to me that, you know, you talked last time about William and Kate having a target on their back now because of these racist slurs. Mm. But actually, I would have thought Harry and Meghan also have a target on their back. That's right, because you've got two very politicised, hyper-motivated teams, uh, and they... You know, throw brickbats at each other across the internet, and and the heart of it are actually just human beings who fell out about things that, were, and we'll never know exactly and why. All done in public. I mean, in some ways, the royal family are doing the right thing. It's dignified silence, trying to remain above it, trying to keep the temperature down. Presumably, there are conversations going on behind the scenes. But Harry and Meghan have got the bit between the teeth, and and I think the problem is, you know, the more outrageous they are, the more money they're going to make, the more viewers they're going to have. So it's in their interest to stoke this up, mm. you know. And that's where, for me, it looks a very cynical exercise. Well, I do think, though, that the palace should say something about Clarkson and let it be known that they very much disapprove of that kind of language, which I'm sure they do, actually. Well, I mean, why should they comment? You know, he's a deprived individual. Um, I'm sure he hasn't been put up to it. He's just, he's gone off AWOL to do his own thing. It looks bad. He's hanging out with Camilla. He's saying these things. Well, he may not get an invitation to Camilla's next uh, (laughs) lunch party, that's all. Have you had yours? Um, I try and just keep totally independent, so I'm not compromised. Oh, I would sell out in a heartbeat for a nice invitation to the palace. Oh, and a knighthood and your <laughs> rectory in Wiltshire. You're the establishment one. Well, I think maybe actually I've become that <laughs> way a little bit. I hope Jane forgives me anyway, if you're listening in Australia, Jane. Um, so other feedback we've had, um, some of it even more hurtful. I have to tuck my shirt in. Right. I've, I don't notice, haven't noticed anything about me. It seems to be all about you, isn't it? Oh, dear. Maybe I'm a bit more theatrical. Right. <laughs> you say more. But I've had a rather exciting week because I've been doing uh, a lot more research on the Cambridge Spy stories. A lot of papers have been released. It suggests that the Cambridge Spy ring was not five, but more like 50. Oh. Uh, and though more stuff hasn't been released uh, at this time, uh, enough has been released for me to start thinking about doing another book. And the other interesting thing is I've just... Uh, been representing myself in a tribunal against the Metropolitan Police. They've been trying to hold back a file on the Duke of Windsor, his protection file from 1932, arguing that that will jeopardise the security of the royal family. When you've got Prince Harry leaking stuff and doing podcasts, it doesn't seem to me that the stuff is particularly dangerous. But um, anyway, we've had our court case. I I think I've made the case that a document from 100 years ago is not going to uh, jeopardise royal security, particularly given technological advancements so so various things are going on and i mean we've we've been well we'll talk later about the where we feel we should be going what would people would like us to be doing we will um well yes we should also say people to people who may have just joined us for harry and megan that we have done other things um certainly the mount batten show is one i'm very proud of and the work you continue to do on that story um which deserves your funding people if you're feeling generous at Christmas. Well, still, oh, I think 65,000. But it's um, the police service in Northern Ireland, who I've been chasing for a year, promised a response to the information commissioner about some of my questions. Um, Arthur Smith, who is the the latest victim of uh, Matt Batten's paedophile activities, is, is supposed to, his lawyer is meant to be making some more statements shortly. So the, the story is running there. Well, if we keep going, maybe we'll be let back into the radical anti-establishment club. I hope so. <laughs> But talking of the establishment, um, you introduced me to this amazing story that I knew so little about, which is now going to be the focus of most of the rest of this programme. Um, so perhaps you should introduce it. 
Well, it's the story of a politician called Bob Boothby, um, who educated Eton in Oxford, actually never really had a, a, a serious job. He was a junior spokesman during the war. But he was a sort of media politician. He was on any questions. Uh, and he got involved with organized crime, particularly with the Cray brothers. And there was a big case in the 60s where basically he was bisexual, he was busy... Uh, the craze were pimping for him in return for favours. Um, and we had Dan Smith, who's written a book on him. In fact, a book has been optioned for, for film uh, on to talk about it. And, you know, this is back to our regular stuff, the, the way the establishment covers up stories which uh, protect rich and powerful people. Yeah, well, it is a great, a great story of the establishment covering things up and the consequences of that. But before we go to Dan, I should just say, because I'm always accused, um, more criticism, of assuming too much knowledge yes so there are people out there who probably don't know who the craze are for example yes okay. notorious london gangsters of the 60s uh ran massive protection rackets got involved with sport and politics and showbiz and were truly psychopathically terrifying but yes but i mean lots of you know well-known figures barbara windsor and others were going to their parties i'm not sure lord snowden wasn't involved they they had a nightclub and they used that and what's interesting is in some ways i understand a bit like kinkora coming back to mount batten the boys home there british intelligence were were, were monitoring them because they were providing intelligence they're compromising politicians because of their homosexuality and this was being used as a way of gathering intelligence and i suppose having you know some power over some of these individuals Okay, we have set the scene. Let's go to the tape. We've already talked. A, we've already talked a little bit about the book uh, before introducing you into our little podcast. But um, I guess you know we call ourselves the scandal mongers, but here we are with a, uh, a fascinating book about a scandal that never was. Yeah, indeed. Um, and it certainly made me feel how very tame some of today's scandals in politics are. <laughs> I mean, you've got like the prime minister and half the cabinet knowing about these amazing events and then, well, as I'm sure you'll explain, and even like top lawyers and barristers kind of like happily going along with, 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 with kind of utter lies, really. Indeed, yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. And, and cover-up. Well, I mean, the idea that senior politicians can be mixing with organised crime, I mean, that really wouldn't happen now. No, uh, and everyone knows about it and just shuts the story down, really. Well, and the we, cross-party I mean, I... aspect of it always fascinates me as well. Indeed, yes. Um, both parties seem to have um, helped this man. But let's let's just rewind. And, and talk to, maybe you can talk us through the highlights of the story because, you know, Philip Larkin said that sex was invented in 1963, but I think he got it wrong. <laughs> Well, I mean, this really burst burst out in sixty four, July sixty four, with the the Sunday Mirror um, headline about the peer and the gangster. Um, so they basically had the, the nuts and bolts of the story. They didn't have all the detail quite right, but they they um, alleged without naming names that the the Met were investigating this uh, as then improper relationship between uh, a senior member of the House of Lords and and a well known. East End gangster. So that's that's sort of how it all began, um, and then of course it descends very quickly into what I would suggest is probably the most most effective political cover up. It's certainly in British politics of the of the century. So the peer was this man Lord Boothby, who was mm. an extraordinary figure. It's hard to kind of explain him in modern terms. I mean, it's like a celebrity rake. Is that fair? yes. Yeah. So he entered Parliament in 24. He was born in 1900. So he entered Parliament in 1924 as a young, young man. 
with very high hopes of a, a you know a, a stellar career. Really, he, he came into Parliament alongside Macmillan, Harold Macmillan, and the two of them worked quite closely together. Um, but certainly in those early days of the two, if if you were looking for a future leader of the Conservative Party and, and a future Prime Minister, people would have been backing Boothby rather than Macmillan. Um, during the general strike, uh, he wrote a, a letter to Winston Churchill, who was already by then, you know, a very established figure in the, in the political ether, um, basically critiquing him and telling him everything he was doing wrong during the general strike. Churchill being Churchill wasn't that impressed um, at being critiqued, but was nonetheless sort of struck by um, Boothby's kind of reviewer and, and talent and made him his parliamentary private secretary. Um, so the, the, the career is going very well at this stage. And then really he makes his first big error, which is to start a, uh, an affair with Macmillan's wife, um, Dorothy, who was the daughter of the Duke of Devonshire which became common knowledge, including to Harold Macmillan himself. It was an affair that went on for decades. Um, Macmillan seems to have, to some extent, forgiven Boothby, and, and they uh, continue to work together and have, have a, a decent working relationship over the years. But really, it, it marked um, Boothby out among his contemporaries as a, as a man that perhaps couldn't be really trusted and his his political career never really hit the heights after that uh he was called into the wartime coalition as a very junior minister ministry of food um then got involved in a financial scandal quite a complex financial scandal where he was um attempting to um help check refugees from from the nazis uh be reunited with some of their the wealth that they'd have, have to leave behind in Czechoslovakia um, by essentially um, claiming claiming the money from frozen German assets in London. Um, it was a very, a very complex case, really. Uh, in many ways, it, there was quite a lot of merit to what he was arguing, but he failed to mention in Parliament that he was also getting a kickback from some of his Czech wow. friends for helping. Wow. Um, so that really did mark the end of his serious political career. And then after the war, um, he, he he took to the airwaves really, and, and was very effective at it. He had a very distinctive, sort of melodious voice. Yeah, I found him on YouTube. He's all over YouTube on like these American talk shows. Yeah, playing this yeah. kind of Pat Hancock of his time. Yeah, absolutely. And he was great with anecdotes. Um, so famously, he talked about uh, he, he was quite early on to the dangers of Hitler. Um, so he, he went actually went out to Germany, I think, in 31, end of 31, and he was given an audience with Hitler, um, who uh, was working out of a hotel room at the time. So Boothby would tell how he was taken to, to meet Hitler and to, taken all the way up to his desk without Hitler really acknowledging him. And then, then Hitler sprung to his feet and, and gave the salute. Hell Hitler and, and Boothby says he responded by raising his own arm and saying, Hell Boothby. And you know, you kind of go along on the chat show circuit with these kind of anecdotes. It's obviously great stuff. So, yeah, he, he was a, a real, a proper household name, um, arguably, you know, after the Prime Minister, about the most recognizable politician in the country in, in this by the early 60s. And a kind of much loved. Um, kind of almost like a father figure by that point. You know, by the 60s, he turned 60. He was on This Is Your Life in 1963. You know, he really was a, 
a mainstream figure. But, but stories have been circulating for some time in Fleet Street about his private life. Uh, and this is sort of what we, we you come to in your, your book, really. Yeah. Uh, the whole episode with, with the craze. Yeah, absolutely. So, and he'd worked as a journalist. So he had friends within Fleet Street who essentially, you know, gave him a, a veil of protection. I think this was part of his downfall that by the time by the time he got to this stage in his life, he felt fairly bulletproof. Um, and he was also incredibly reckless. He'd always been reckless. Um, he was part of that. He was just too young to serve in the First World War, but he was of that generation that had seen cousins and friends die during the war. Um, he'd gone up to Oxford afterwards where there was essentially that missing generation. And I think, so from uh, from an early age, he kind of had this reckless side to him and this idea that, you you know, you live life for the moment and, and you know, pleasure is a, is a, a thing to pursue. Uh, he was a prodigious drinker. He was... Um, a gambler and and he was also prodigiously bisexual so uh, alongside the relationship with Dorothy McMillan and, and various other he was a, a serial uh, serially engaged to all sorts of beautiful women um he was also in relationships with men and and this was certainly uh, well known by by the time of the the Cray scandal well known both within Fleet Street and within Westminster yeah you compare him to Charles James Fox being a bit of an 18th century aficionado yeah. i'm going to drag andrew back to that century for one of our programs soon you know yeah. that's actually a great comparison these kind of colorful characters who are staggering between gambling then they can then make a brilliant speech in the house of commons then they're off yeah. with their latest mistress to the racetrack where they'll lose half their fortune then they'll win it back at cards the next day and then they'll probably get into a fight i mean yeah. he's, he's from he's of that mold isn't he and of course absolutely he drew that comparison himself. So he was uh, made chancellor of um, uh, a university up in Scotland. And when he gave his speech to the students, um, he, he, he likened himself to, to Fox and essentially told them, go out and have fun and do what you want to do. So he was quite open about it, as he was in his memoirs. Um, I mean, extraordinarily, when you read his memoirs, about it, he, never, he never openly confessed to being bisexual because homosexuality was illegal for most of his life. Um, so understandably, he never openly confessed to it, but he came as near as he could to to acknowledging it um, in his memoirs. You know, he talked about Oxford being essentially a, a, a um, homosexual environment when he was there. Um, he also talked about uh, how he was drawn to ne'er-do-wells, essentially, how he had an attraction to, to villains. So, you know, it was kind of all the clues were there. Um, but he never explicitly said it. And, and yes, there was this veil of protection around him from not only from the political class, which had dated back right to this affair with Dorothy Macmillan. Um, you know, is that because it was seen? He was seen as essentially harmless. I think you have the Queen Mother, who obviously knew him as well, saying the man was a bounder but not a cad. So yeah, he was so seen as being a- on the edge, but, but basically inoffensive, not dangerous. Although maybe I that think- changes. I think there w- there's an element of that. And I think also there's just an element of, of class snobbery that, you know, we uh, in the upper classes have these people and have these things going on and we'll deal with them in-house. But the, yes. the rabble outside don't need to be uh, aware of all the, all the goings on. And I think that was really what drove it. So this is against the background of the Vassal spy case. This was a, a, mm. 
a British diplomat who was gay, who was compromised in Moscow and, and gave secrets. And, and so there was a, the, the, in some ways, as you say, there were double standards because, okay, he was caught spying, but, but the homosexuality was, was part of the whole thing. Whereas yeah. people like Boothby and indeed Tom Dryberg, who also comes into the story, were sort of basically allowed to, to behave as they wanted. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, yeah, it was okay for, there, there was a certain amount of, utter paranoia that the security services at this time were were riddled with spies who were all homosexual spies as far as the tabloid press would have you think um so there was that climate which i think then made it even more difficult for the establishment to kind of surrender one of their own up so you know they're here amongst us as well sort of thing um and and yeah andrew's absolutely right so you had the the vassal case and then of course profumo um so you'd have these two huge um, political scandals in 62 and 63. Um, and I think to an extent, the vassal scandals being, being forgotten because it was superseded by Profumo so quickly. But actually, at the time, it was a huge scandal and, and you know, could have toppled the government. Profumo did essentially topple Macmillan. And then by 1964, we're looking at this third, possibly the biggest scandal of the three about to erupt, that could utterly not only bring down the government, but, you know, essentially undermine credibility in that whole kind of political class once and for all, that there was complete resistance to to the story breaking out, I think. So just for our viewers and our listeners who maybe not as clued into British history as us, the Profumo affair was was a spy scandal at the heart of um, the Tory party, brought down a minister. John Vassell was a gay Diplomat was compromised by the Russians uh, and then became a spy. Um, and then, of course, we now come to the heart of it, which is the Boothby story, which is threatening to break. Um, how does Boothby find out about this and then how does he try to stop it? So there's Boothby's version of events. Um, he claims he was uh, away in France on, on holiday when news broke and, you know, he was utterly astounded that this story had broken and, and denied it. entirely um that wasn't really (laughs) a viable argument as we now now know um so he basically they had the craze the cray twins were these notorious east london gangsters and they had uh they were building their empire at the time so certainly for a british audience the craze have become quite iconic cultural figures but in 1964 they're well, they're, they're, they're villains, but they're not well-known by everybody, but they're now well-known to the police. So the police mm-hmm. put in place a, a long period of um, uh, putting numerous officers on, tracking them to see what they're up to, basically. So this had happened in the beginning of 1964, and it was this surveillance that uh, brought to light the fact that they were uh, in in some kind of friendship, Ronnie Gray particularly, with... Boothby and this then made its way to the um, news desk of the Sunday Mirror to the crime reporter there Norman Lucas who had lots of connections within the police so he was the one who broke the story exactly where Boothby was really when he first heard about the story is anyone's guess his initial response his initial response is to deny it to everybody Um, and but he also get, gets very depressed very quickly. He's sure that, that the net is closing in. He, as I mentioned before, he was a prodigious drinker anyway. He was drinking a huge amount at this stage. 
uh, there's this suggestion that he was suicidal um, and he didn't see a way out of it. Wow. It is a funny world you describe as a brilliant, you, your book describes it beautifully. It's, it's the Cray twins who are just kind of thugs and really scary thugs, but they seem to be kind of moving in and out of high society, in the world of sport and show business and politics, and all these louche bohemian characters keep popping up in these nightclubs. These are famous artists, Lucian Freud, Francis Bacon, cabinet ministers, and it's all it's all kind of decline and fall of Rome, isn't it? It feels like that. And then it is. suddenly, yes, it, this is about to be exposed. Um and what 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 was it that Boothby was alleged to have done that was wrong, apart from have um, you know unpleasant friends? Was it anything criminal? Yes, it was the the suggestion from the Sunday Mirror was that there was a homosexual relationship between him and Ronnie Cray. Um, in fact, there was never a homosexual relationship between him and Ronnie Cray, but there was a friendship between the two, and the two essentially the two would never have fancied each other. <laughs> um, that's the long and the short of it. But the they were both... Pimping, pimping for him, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. It's pimping for him. And both were attracted to young men or in the parlance of the day, chickens. Um, and they would go hunting for chickens together. So we're talking about young men down to the kind of late teens. So very young indeed, especially bearing in mind, you know, by this stage, Booth be 64 years old. And generally, it was sort of working class, uh, uh, sort of rough trade, really. Yes. So um, Ronnie Gray, by now, had this reputation for fairly indiscriminate violence. And, and he was a scary figure. And he would hold parties. He had a, a, a flat in, in Hackney where he would hold notorious parties, for want of a better word, sex parties, where he would trawl the streets for uh, for, for young guests um, he would go to Piccadilly where the meat rack, the infamous meat rack was. Um, but there was also, you know, presumably there were some people there of their own volition, but he, he also had the power just to go up to young men in the local area. And, and he apparently had a habit of, if he took a fancy to you, you pop a 10 or 20 pound note in your, in your um, shirt pocket. And that really meant uh, you'd be expected to kind of pay that back one way or the other. And often that was to be present at one of these parties. Um, so Jess Conrad, who's a pop singer, very successful at the time, has gone on the record to talk about how he would um, socialise with the craze in, in the pubs of Soho. Um, but often if there were, um, if word got round that Ronnie was coming in his car to one of the pubs, the pubs would clear out of the young men there because they didn't want to be around when Ronnie turned up. Because if he if he tapped you on the shoulder and said, do you want to come to a party? Mm. It wasn't an invitation mm. that you really had much say. So really, it was an expectation that you were coming to the party. Golly. So in, in, in trying to stop this, what levers can he pull to booth in hand? So, so initially he just goes with this denial, um, which is is fairly ineffectual early on. Um, he looks to his party for help, um, but they don't provide him with any legal assistance. So you have meetings of senior government figures at this time, and it soon becomes apparent that there is likely to be some truth behind this story. So we have uh, MI5, um, in on these meetings. MI5 had evidence since the previous year that uh, 
Boothby and Cray have been known to each other. Well, this contradicts what Boothby's gone public with, which is saying that he had not met Ronnie Cray until 1964, and then it was on two occasions, which were business meetings. Mm. Um, so the, the government was quickly aware that this was a lie. Um, there was also, uh, there were backbench MPs that then came forward to say that uh, Boothby had been witnessed um, at dog track stadiums around London in the company of gangsters, presumably the craze, um, picking up young men. So the Conservative Party were very nervous by this point. They didn't want to throw him to the wolves because they, the uh, fallout from that would potentially be so damaging to the party as a whole. Uh, but they essentially cut him loose and they would not provide him with um, specialist legal advice. So he's really left to his own devices until we have the appearance of um, Arnold Goodman. Another um, wonderful character. Yeah, another (laughs) incredible character who at this time was um, in the inner circle of Harold Wilson. Um, Although he was theoretically non-partisan, he was essentially the, the... chief political advisors of the Labour Party. Uh, Harold Wilson being the leader of the Labour Party, so this is the opposition to the Conservatives. Yes, leader of the Labour Party, and at this stage, kind of really seeing an opportunity to to get into number 10 as well. So Goodman is a powerful figure, um, and he's really the driving force behind uh, Boothby's more rigorous defence against the allegations, which, which soon kicks in. So it's very strange when it looks like the Conservative Party could really be brought to their knees, that the chief uh, legal advisor to the to the opposition comes to his rescue, along with uh, QC um, Gerald Gardner, who would then go on to become Lord Chancellor in Wilson's government. So you've got these two pivotal figures in the Labour story coming to rescue this old Tory, this old Tory fool, really, who's got himself <laughs> into a horrible spot of bother. So you know, it was a very mysterious turn of events. Goodman was exceedingly aggressive. He was essentially a, a, a media libel lawyer. That was where his strengths really were. And and his, he was a huge man. He was like a bear of a man. And uh, he could be utterly charming until you weren't playing ball with him. And then he, he had this very aggressive side to him. And he just went after the Sunday Mirror, um, told Boothby to... Uh, to, to utterly deny it, uh, to deny all the allegations, got him to write a, a letter detailing his denial, which was then printed in the Times. And the Sunday Mirror were quickly on the run, um, very nervous about this story by this stage, and, and not only retracted it, but apologised to Boothby and gave him what was then a record payout of £40,000. So it was a, a very quick turnaround. Why was Goodman saving a Conservative? Goodman was essentially saving a Conservative because it turned out that Labour also had skin in this game because um, Boothby had a partner in crime in all of this who was uh, Tom Dryberg, um, who had, as recently as the late 50s, been chairman of the Labour Party and, and remained a, a major figure within within the party. So you had suddenly, <laughs> from this apparent uh, moment of opportunity where the Conservatives look like they're going to get a, a proper kicking, suddenly <laughs> Labour realised, goodness me, this might backfire on us as well. And I think Wilson also has a genuine concern that if it did, in the life of Vassal and Profumo, it wasn't just going to be the Conservatives that, that you know, took, took the punishment, it was going to be the whole of the political class and what turmoil would follow, nobody quite knew. 
So um, that essentially was why they, they sent in their best men to rescue him. And it sort of led to a much more deferential press after this. I mean, the craze basically, were, were, you know, no one could touch them after this. Absolutely, they couldn't touch them. I mean, we got into the age of the craze being well-known East London sportsmen rather than, you know, the, the thuggish villains that they really were. Um, and it was only after... There's, there's always much debate as to how many people the craze killed, but there were no... Um, known convicted murders in their track record up to that point and and the, the ones that came all followed this incident oh. um they did go on trial in 1965 one of their henchmen um smashed up a west london club and the craze were put on trial and and that was seen as possibly an opportunity to to lock them away but um boothby actually made representations on their behalf um, in the house of lords and they were eventually acquitted um during that trial and and really from then they kicked on again and had another four years which were their, their most violent most murderous years so do you think then that we, we said this is a, you know a victimless scandal of a, of a man who misbehaves and larger than life character a bounder but actually because it was covered up it might have had a much darker effect and maybe cost lives yeah i don't think it was victimless at all even from the beginning i mean i think that that those young men and and some cases boys that were attending those parties i think they were complete victims of something horrible a kind of complete uh, abuse of power on cray's part the abuse of power that he had through his penchant for violence on boothby's the power that he he wielded through his social status and his wealth um, so I think there were always victims. And then, yes, afterwards, you can point even more clearly to to the men who died at the hands of the craze when the craze might otherwise have been in prison. And I, sh- I should say as well, involved with all of this, so we have both parties involved. We have senior legal figures. We have Fleet Street that goes into a sort of self-imposed cover-up. But we also have the Metropolitan Police involved in this uh had Joseph Simpson, who was the, the chief commissioner, came out very early after the Sunday Mirror story first broke to deny that there was any such investigation going on. Um, and I think it was a very strange decision for him to have made uh, because the Sunday Mirror was not, as I mentioned, correct in all the detail of the story. But they basically were on to something that was pretty much the truth. And certainly the craze had been surveilled by the Met for several months and they had been well aware of this strange relationship going on with the craze. So Joseph Simpson had intervened and that really again undermined, having come out publicly like that, all that evidence that had been gained from that surveillance operation really became um, you know, virtually unusable. Gosh, that is pretty and, and Simpson admitted later that that actually they hadn't really bothered policing a lot of this stuff because they didn't mm. want to to expose public figures so they turned yeah. a blind eye yeah and i think this is this is all part of it as well the, the deeply ingrained aspects of it so dryberg was famous for always being arrested by coppers whilst he was cottaging out what he did and uh he'd always sort of say do you know who i am and they basically would check out the details and realise who he was and off he'd go. Um, I spoke to a, a, an officer who was um, very early on in his career was walking through Eaton Square where Boothby lived and he talked about it was late at night and he saw 
what he thought was a, a green velvet cape in a gutter. So he went over to look at it and it was Boothby. He was drunk and basically had slumped in this gutter. So he, he called up uh, some assistants and they took him off to the station. And when he got to the station, the, the senior officer there just looked appalled and said to him, you cannot bring him in, just take him back to where you found him. They literally <laughs> took him back and plumped him back in the gutter. But it was this kind of deference. And, we, you know, we're just going to leave these people alone because they're doing what they're doing. But we don't want to to sully, get our hands sullied and, and, and you know, deal with the fallout of arresting it's, it's, it's also public the, figures. It's also quite a sad story of powerlessness from the from boys you know andrew and i talked about the mm. the king cora boys home case in another mm. episode just something we've both investigated and really right through that era into the 70s maybe even beyond you know when you complained about abuse or you, or you felt you couldn't complain if powerful men did things to you because if you were from a poor background nobody would listen absolutely yeah and you know i published earlier this year a book on dolphin square and again there are so many stories of this this era, you know, certainly 60s, 70s, 80s into the 90s, where there was it was just the dumb thing to turn a blind eye, and it was it was an easier thing to do. Um, we we know what the consequences of that was. I mean, you've interviewed I mean various people involved in the story, even though it's you know the story is now almost 60 years old. I mean, you found mm. people who uh, actually knew knew the craze and, and you know, mm. have stories to tell about it. Extraordinary. Um, and clearly a lot of new material was produced in the National Archives, but clearly there's still a lot presumably being held back. Yeah, well, I, I'm always, most mostly what intrigues me is, um, for me writing this book, one of the gold mines was that MI5 released their files on Boothby in 2015. So that was a, was a gold mine. Um, and it deals with a lot of this, but the files run out in... 64 and i assume they didn't just stop um keeping an eye on him at this stage and his relationship essentially after 1964 um and and when the scandal goes away boothby and dryberg are both really in a hock to the craze it would only take ronnie to decide to, to you know go renegade and and say actually yes there was something going on with them that you know they're back in all this trouble again so really they they were jumping to the the uh, dancing to the craze tune um, in those years. So I'd be fascinated to see what MI5 made of all of that. And, and presumably, presumably there is a file still somewhere that will one day come to light. And uh, I hope very much to be able to see it when it does. So what happens to Boothby? What happens to the craze? Uh, we've probably got about five minutes left. So we'd love to, to wrap this up. Yeah. Know, in a sense... Uh, Boothby never really gets any kind of comeuppance, does he? Not, not really, uh, other than he has to uh, live out the rest of his life with this dark secret. And I would say there was a, an aspect of humiliation that he went through, particularly, I mentioned in 1965, the craze go on trial. They weren't given bail for fear that they would attempt to nobble witnesses, basically, which they would have done. Um, and indeed, they still did. Uh, so Boothby stood up in the House of Lords and against all protocol, which shouldn't have been representing individuals in that context, he demanded to know why they were still being held and not, not given bail. And he was roundly booed by the House of Lords. You know, they, mm. everybody knew what was going on and, it, and really it was a horrible humiliation for him, but he had to do it. 
Um, a few years later, he married, married a very uh, much younger, glamorous Italian woman. And seemingly, um, after the Crays were convicted in 1969 and given their hugely long um, sentences, uh, he, he sort of broke the bonds with them and had much less to do with them. Dreiber continued to correspond with them and represent, make representations for them all the way through to his death in the mid-70s. But Cray, uh, Boothby, sorry, seems to have managed to kind of break those chains then. And he lived out the rest of his life with his wife um, seemingly very happily. You know, there, there's lots of uh, rumours to whether this was a, a marriage of convenience for one or both of them, but there seems to have been genuine affection between them. And um, yeah, he died in 1986 and it was only after his death that the story started to come to light. But also there's an element, there's a suggestion that Sarah McMillan, McMillan's daughter was actually Boothby's daughter. Uh, yeah. And actually other people have come forward since, I mean, godchildren of his, who seem to have discovered that he was their child. That's right, yeah. They, yeah. they were his child. Yeah, so there's still lots of doubt around who whose father Sarah Churchill was, but, you know, it certainly is not beyond the realms of possibility that, um, that it Boothby was father. And, uh, yeah, after I wrote the book, I, I was contacted by, by an individual who, uh, told me her very interesting life story, uh, which essentially involved her older sister thinking that she might possibly have been one of Boothby's uh, children. And it turned out that she and her sister both were. Uh, they took DNA tests and, and, and found out they were. And that kind of fits in with the story. Um, Boothby's nef- um, cousin was Ludovic Kennedy, the, the journalist, and he always said that there were th- at least three legitimate children Boothby. political so, uh, political uh, leaders of britain with more children than they admit to that that could never happen now a lot of this story couldn't happen now and actually i take some comfort in that yeah i think so you know in the in the age of phone cameras you you can't creep in and out of parties without somebody somewhere snapping you but of course, I think that's part of the, the wonder of this story, too, because Boothby, you know, there were cameras around there, too. And the Crays were not averse to to taking photos. They loved the photograph of celebrities and and that Boothby would have thought to himself, well, this is this is all fine and I can't possibly get into any trouble here. Even back then, it, it was at best a, an arrogant uh, assertion in his own mind and one that was was horribly wrong. So the one thing from the book that really struck me as a starving author was you could get £36,000 for a serial in 1960. I know. You couldn't get that now. You can't. No. No. It's extraordinary, isn't it? But there we go. Golden age, maybe, not just of bad behaviour on politicians, but also of kind of, you know, hacks. There was, you know, newspapers were so big, so profitable. Yeah. It was a different age, certainly. Well, thank you so much for taking us through that. I just, I really enjoyed the book. Still plenty of time before Christmas. Uh, if you're, anybody's looking for a present, I would recommend this. It's a cracking read. And it'll make a wonderful drama. So uh, the drama rights have been sold, and we hope that will be out, you know, maybe even next year. Oh, who's going to play Boothby? Oh, that's a good question, one, isn't it? Yeah. Toby Jones. Oh, that's a yeah, that, that could work. That could work. Oh, well, thanks ever so much for joining us. 
And uh, well, thank we're, you. We're now going to return to Scandal Central in Kentish Town. See you later. See you later. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Dan. Bye. Bye bye. So that's a story you didn't really know much about, Phil. I knew very little about that. And <laughs> we came too late, Andrew. There were golden age of scandal in yeah. the 60s. Well, they were I still, thick and fast, weren't they? Yeah, just a little bit too young. Well, we I, can I pretend was alive. The, we can pretend at the age of eight that we remembered the craze, but probably not. <laughs> but in some ways, I mean, you talk about it being the golden age of scandal, but it's only really because the scandals were beginning to emerge. At the time, people didn't realise. It was all being suppressed. And I think the idea of the press suppressing these stories... Mm. Uh, protecting rich and powerful people, and both political parties, uh, in a sense, working to, to the same ends there. I suspect that's still going on. We just don't know uh, what's being suppressed. Right. Do you remember back when we talked about Diana? And I told you the story of the tape, the Squidgygate tape. Yeah. How the Sun had it for nearly two years before they ran it. And they actually made a decision that apparently, this is what the editor said, at the highest level, which means Murdoch, not to run it because they thought it would break up the royal marriage and they didn't want to do that. Um, do I believe that? I think I believe it. Yeah, well, sometimes the press, you know, I suppose have a heart, um, you know, and think they're playing a bigger game. I mean, I'm always amazed. It's a bit like intelligence. You run stories because you want to see where they go. And I suspect they have often have a lot of incriminating evidence. I know about a, a former senior politician where it was a lot of material about their private life, which was, which was not revealed. Uh, and... Um, and I, uh, one wonders if it ever will be revealed. They're no longer involved in politics in a big mm. way. But um, I have to tease that one out of you next series. Yeah, all perhaps. these rumours. I went to the Mail on Sunday party, and that's always good. You get, always get good stories there. there are two, this is my argument. There are, in a sense, two histories of this country. There's the history that we're fed, and there's the history that those in the know uh, are aware of. And it's, it's part of this sort of... And it's power. The people in Whitehall like it, and they don't want it out. And the journalists like it. And do you think Britain is unique in that respect? Nope. Uh, interesting. I had lunch on Friday with uh, uh, an Australian intelligence officer, and he said it was exactly the same there. And well, I always thought that was quite an open society. Well, I've been fascinated to read all this material that Elon Musk has released about the New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop. Yes. And at the time, I have to be honest, I was so desperate to see the back of Trump that I was perfectly relaxed about that. But actually, it's a bit smelly. You know, this was a legitimate story, which was basically covered up, not by some old establishment, but by people wearing chinos in Silicon Valley. Well, I think the thing is, you know, we don't have a t t truly independent pr press. I mean, you know, we try and keep above the fray. We try and be even-handed. But I think there are always so many other issues going on. I mean, I'm just doing Andrew and Fergie at the moment. And if we remember, the story about uh, Andrew and Epstein was, was ABC had, Amy Roback. Uh, and she wasn't allowed to run the story. Pressure was put on her by the palace. We're talking about the briefings, saying, you know, if you want to talk to, to Kate and William, then, you know, this perhaps is a good idea not to do this. And that was shut down for several years until someone else ran with it. So, you know, the press coming to stories later, as with Boothby, is, is, is clearly continues to this present day. Yes, and we also talked about tipping points and several of the things we've discussed. Jimmy Savile, perhaps Mountbatten, certainly well, Martin Bashir. Yep. Well, we should talk about Bashir because your involvement, I yeah, think, I've next year. Yeah, I've got a lot to say about Bashir, and that's, I think, should be one of our shows yeah. coming up. Yep. We may have to get libel lawyers in. We may have to get libel lawyers in, and, and maybe the interior decorators too. <laughs> right. But, or maybe you should just clear next year for your, your time and wormwood scrubs. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, uh, by the magic of editing, 
are going to take us away now and return for our final segment of our first year as podcasters. Philip, you're on a mission to humiliate me. I am on a mission. You've shown shown pictures of me in a tartan short sleeve shirt, and I think this is the final indignity to wear this hat. I'm just trying to humanise you, Andrew. (laughs) Well, that will take a lot longer than than the time we've got. Well, as people may have guessed, um, who are watching, we're wearing our silly Christmas hats, and we've hung up our Christmas stocking on the wall. If you're listening, you'll have to just imagine the scene in your head. So what do you want in your stocking? What, what, do you, what scandals would you like in your stocking? Well, Christmas? good question. This is a question for the, for the viewers, really. Uh, what should we be doing? Should we be doing more royal material? Should we be having more guests uh, on? Uh, should we be looking at some of the stories that w- w- interest us, perhaps going back in history? Um, How about a contribution to your legal fund? Well, that that would be nice. That would be nice. I have been given leave to appeal for my costs. Uh, I've got some pro bono lawyers. So uh, I'm hopeful that maybe we will be able to get some money back. But um, yes, that, yeah. that would so, be yeah, good. So yeah, our baby podcast's first Christmas. Uh, eight episodes we've done. We're going to come back. Are we are not deterred. We're coming back in the middle of January. Well, it's interesting to see which ones have been the most popular. Clearly the most popular, I think with, you say, 7,000 views, was on just on YouTube, was, was Valentine Lowe on, on Meghan and Harry. The, the Matt Batten seemed to do quite well. I think that's 3,000. Yeah, nobody seemed to care very much about my views on World War II. Yeah, what a shame, because actually they're very interesting and they're fresh. <laughs> so all those who want more Phil on World War II, write in, tell us. Uh, otherwise, you'll just get more Meghan and Harry. I think it's lovely having Valentine actually here in the studio. Yes, yeah, so Let's have more guests difference. actually physically present. Yeah, I think that's good. And, and we need... Maybe we, somebody who's not a man. Exactly. I think, that, I think that was one of the problems. Uh, not one of the problems, but I think, you know, clearly we do need some more females. Um, or, or any. <laughs> Just honest, one. To be honest. One to go. But um, we've got lots of ideas for the future. I think we're talking possibly to someone about Oscar Wilde uh, yes. in the new year. And I'm going to finally, having teased it enough, reveal my intimate knowledge of the Martin Bashir scandal. Yep, I think that would be good. And Panorama, which of course takes us back to Diana, but actually takes us back to the idea of an establishment and a cover-up. Um, a different kind of establishment, perhaps, to the royal establishment, but it's um, the effects of what was done um, not just to Diana herself, but to the people on Panorama who complained about that, uh, were long-lasting and very, very negative. Yeah, well, I think that plays into our narrative, you know, about cover-ups, basically. People in powerful positions who want to maintain the status quo and don't want the truth coming out. I think we're also talking about having um, Simon Danzuk, who, who's written a book on Dolphin Square, which again has been optioned for television. So it's the story of a block of flats in London which where lots and lots of scandal happened. Spies lived there. There was a paedophile ring there, one of our favourite subjects, uh, two of our favourite subjects, uh, even royals there. So it brings everything together. Well, actually, I've forgotten. Um, you think I've humiliated you enough. Um, no, there, did, there are new indignities. Well, I did promise, um, I think, on Twitter that if we get to a 1,000 subscribers on YouTube, um, we'll dad dance our way around the office to our, to our music. Are you good at dad dancing? <laughs> well, I think that uh, maybe if it's not on YouTube, that may be okay. Well, we're, we're not even halfway. We've yeah. got a, think, over There's 300. There's an incentive, yeah, to sign so up. If you want to see Andrew dancing, yeah. uh, please subscribe. And, and indeed, if you like the shows, and thank you for listening if you do, do please subscribe and share them, because that's how we'll grow our little pod. And so it'll be a toddling podcast in the new year. 
Yeah, and it's been a pleasure. We've had a really good uh, team working on it. Theo and his colleagues have been terrific. Uh, I think our rapport is is sort of well. We've known each other a long time, but I think we're getting into our finally called it on our proper name. <laughs> yeah, after, <laughs> after forty years, after over forty years. <laughs> You're and, lucky. I don't call you Mister. Well, actually, talking of dancing, do you remember when I broke the pier? Yes, I do. Yes, there was a thing called pogoing in the 1970s, and I decided to go pogoing. This is when Andrew and I met on this amazing tour around Europe in 1978 when we'd won an essay competition. And I was pogoing on a pier in Switzerland and I went right through it. <laughs> into, exactly. Into the we had to leave early the next morning. Well, there'll be no pogoing on this programme. Um, but yeah, it's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to next year. And just thank you to anybody who's listened. Yeah, great. And, and happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.